0: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello.
2: Where's Jeff you ask? Truth is we've had a slightly uncheerful moment. Jeff and I were just about to record our little chat with him in his attic and me on the phone and then his computer blew up. Don't worry, the rest of the episode is all ready to go, but I'm afraid no badinage this week. I can tell you what we're going to be talking about, though. It's very much dominating my life at the moment. It's the ground campaign in elections, the part of campaigns fought door-to-door by candidates and activists in their local areas. At a time when a lot of the focus on election campaigns is about the use of micro-targeting and online ads, we've also seen the reemergence of grassroots campaigning in a number of different countries. Academics have consistently found that doorstep conversations are one of the most effective tools for political campaigns. In the US, the Obama campaign combined huge door-knocking operations with clever use of data in 2008 and 2012, and more recently, Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2016 pioneered new ways of mobilising grassroots activists. Jeff is going to be talking to one of the leaders of that effort, Becky Bond, about how the Sanders team inspired its volunteers, and then he'll be talking to Vincent Pons and Simon Krasinski about how door-to-door canvassing has made a surprising reappearance in both France and Germany in recent elections. Then to round things off, he'll be joined by comedian Rosie Jones, who'll be sharing her highlights of this week in the election campaign. Sorry about the technical problems. Enjoy this week's Reasons to be Cheerful. And we are 10 days or less before the general election, so normal service will soon be resumed.
3: Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Geoff Lloyd. I'm going to talk now to Becky Bond, who was formerly a senior advisor on the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. She advised Beto O'Rourke on his 2018 Texas Senate campaign. She's also co-written a fantastic book called Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organising Can Change Everything. Becky, hello.
0: Oh, it's so great to be with you.
3: Um, I wondered if we could start with Bernie Sanders. Now, I know he's been around in US politics for a long time, but I don't think he was really somebody on our radar over here until the 2016 presidential campaign. Could you tell us a bit about the story of that run for president and the role of grassroots activism in that campaign?
0: Back in 2015, like a lot of people, I was starting to feel like change really wasn't possible in the United States. I was someone who had dedicated my career to social justice. And and too often when we achieved a victory, it was only for stopping something from getting worse. and, And we really weren't succeeding at making things better. And meanwhile, we had income inequality that was rapidly rising. We weren't meeting the climate crisis. And in our country, huge problems with mass incarceration and growing mass deportations of immigrants. And so when Bernie Sanders, who for many, many years um, had been fighting for uh, the big change that our society needed. When he ran for president, this was finally an opportunity, though a really long-shot opportunity, not just to stop things from getting worse, but to actually make things better. And so he started running for presidency in the spring of 2015. And at that time, he only had 3% name recognition but by the time we got to the Democratic National Convention in July of 2016, he had won 46% of the delegates to that convention and, and almost had won in a shock upset the nomination uh, for the presidency.
3: That is an incredible story. Can you tell me about how grassroots activism specifically played a part in that?
0: Grassroots activism played a huge role in the rise of the, of the movement around Bernie Sanders. And he did this because people like me, Um, And a lot of other people realized that if enough of us got involved in the presidential election, then we could put victory within reach. And I, I was one of the very few experienced organizers who joined the campaign back in 2015. And we quickly realized that there were tens of thousands of volunteers all across the country beating down the door to do whatever it took to elect Bernie. But campaigns at the presidential level in the United States really weren't necessarily set up to let that many people in and give them a real role. So instead of running a traditional operation, we set out at the Bernie Sanders campaign to figure out how can we give all these people who are willing to do anything, quit their jobs, volunteer three nights a week, give them a real role in a viable plan to win. And that's what that's what moved Bernie Sanders from 3% to 46% in a short period of time and changed American politics. It was the fact that he ran a campaign um you know famously said you know not me us but it, it wasn't just what he was fighting for was not about him but was about the big us but it was about how we were going to win it was not going to exclusively be about the candidate but was going to be about what all of us were going to do to change things
3: and and was that significantly different to for example the obama campaign my impression of it you know without being there is is that was very grassrootsy as well in 2008
0: well, th- that's right. I mean, uh, Obama did include a, a lot of volunteers and, and really and really set an, a new marker for organizing at that time. But it was a much more of a, a traditional campaign in the sense that if you're going to have field organizing in the course of your presidential campaign, you set up brick and mortar offices, you rent offices in the most important places, you hire staff You use data modeling to guess which voters are likely with you, which voters are against you, and which voters could be persuaded to be with you. And then those staffers, with some help from volunteers, talk to as many voters as possible in the key places that the campaign has identified. And they do that talking to voters either in person and on the phone. And what the Sanders campaign did in 2016 was was to radically expand the map by using volunteers everywhere. So we had a traditional field campaign apparatus in the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire, but we also had these tens of thousands of volunteers all across the country, and we used the Internet to organize them to gather together in homes, cafes, parks, and take on important parts of the campaign's work, and that, that ranged from calling voters in the key states which had happened before, but also to starting to organize in their own communities, communities that the campaign wouldn't be able to staff until much later, or communities that the campaign would never staff in a presidential uh, election because they weren't seen as being key to victory. Another thing that was different than than the Obama campaign was that we organized volunteers to help run the national infrastructure that was needed to support all of them doing this work. So they weren't just involved in the end mile of talking to the voter on the phone or on the doorstep as they had been in the Obama campaign and other campaigns in the past. But they actually helped run the software. They opened their own offices in their homes, and they did much of the work um, that staff would have had to do in order to make that last mile contact possible.
3: And, and does this all fall under the umbrella of this thing you developed, distributed organizing?
0: A lot of it does, yes. Um, you know, At the heart of distributed organizing, or, or also big organizing, as we like to call it, is this idea That There's this huge but relatively untapped capacity in communities all across your country and my country, a capacity uh, that is not only huge, but it's ready to be called into service. And when you organize with a distributed or a decentralized model as opposed to a strictly centralized model, then you can tap into that capacity by distributing the work of a centralized plan in such a way that everyone can take on tasks that move us closer to victory. And, and it's not just that we didn't just find out in sort of opening up this model and using a distributed model of organizing. Um, it's, it's not just that we found out that there were a lot of people out there willing to do something. A key principle that, that really came home for us in the Bernie Sanders campaign and that this new kind of organizing unlo- unlocked was that people are waiting to be asked to do something big not just something small. They're, they're willing to be asked to do something big if they're going to win something big. And, and what is the trick
3: to persuading volunteers to take an active role? It, is, it, is it that motivation saying, look, we want you to go all in, but the, the rewards for this, the, re, the end result is, is going to be spectacular?
4: well
0: the the good thing for us and those of us who want to change things is it's there's not really a trick it's actually just that we have to be honest and and i think a lot of people that work in politics have a hard time um doing that and and you know the volunteers and the voters out there they're pretty smart and they have a pretty sophisticated analysis about what's happening they understand um that austerity is tearing our communities apart they understand that corporations have captured much of our our, our government and democratic processes. And so if we're honest about the scale of the problem, about how really deep this hole is that we're in, and then we're really honest about the hard work that it's going to take to get from, from where we are, the world that we have, to, to the world that we, that we want. When we're honest about that and we lay out the work and we talk about how hard it's going to be and how much we need them to do, a lot of people step forward because they think, well, this is actually the most practical thing um, I've seen in politics there's no real trick but when we start to be honest with people a lot more people want to participate because because they see that it's practical and realistic even if it's a really big long shot they're willing to do it
3: talk to me about barnstorms what are they
0: <laughs> barnstorms it's so hilarious to hear that word you know in the different contexts because even in the context of the united states a lot of people in a lot of places had no idea what a, what what a barnstorm was you know which which comes out of out of sort of rural organizing in, in the country and everyone coming together to you know, to, in a barn to hear, to hear, to hear somebody talk. Um, But on the Bernie Sanders campaign, it was really interesting. A lot of people like to talk about the, the technology and the innovation and the internet. But one of the things that we discovered on the Bernie Sanders campaign was that we could get people to volunteer to do some things by sending them emails or sending them text messages and and connecting not in person. But, but in order to actually really get uh, our movement from the size that it was with the volunteers that were showing up, On the internet to the size we needed it to be to reach enough voters to put bernie within reach of victory was that we we actually needed to like get people together once in person and get them committed to doing the work and so we used the internet uh, to invite people to come to in-person meetings where they lived and and we we started these meetings when we were having trouble recruiting enough people to our canvases and phone banks um, by email email just wasn't working so we thought we but we were very successful at organizing people by email to show up in person at a meeting so we decided to invite them to a meeting we showed up and then we said okay here's what we need you to do we need 20 percent of you to raise your hands and say you'll hold a phone bank um, and or a canvas and we need the other 80 percent of you to sign up right now um, to attend And and what was amazing about these meetings were when you got people together who didn't know each other came from different parts of town, but all wanted Bernie Sanders to win. And you put them on the spot in person. We were able to exponentially increase the number of people that got to work. And we're seeing the impact of the barnstorms happen in in Canada and in France and in the UK and in Australia and other places where political campaigns, instead of bringing people together to inspire them and then get their name on a list, are bringing them together, inspiring them, and then telling them what they need to do starting right then.
3: So in other words, it's a lot easier to get people to say I'm Spartacus if a couple of people next to them have already said it than it is to send them an email asking if they're Spartacus or not.
0: That's right. There's there's a real social pressure at play in these in-person meetings, and we've seen this in a lot of the political tactics that are working in the United States about people seeing other people doing something makes it more likely for them to do it. And um, Zach Exley, who was the person that really pioneered the design of this of this meeting, along with a guy named Corbin Trent, who who went on um, to become a key member of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's campaign, um, they called it the altar call. And so, what we would literally do in the meeting would say, who wants to help bernie sanders be the next president of the united states everybody would raise their hands and then we said we're going to need some of you to actually plan an event that the rest of us can attend who's willing to plan an event and a bunch of people would raise their hands usually about 20 percent of the people in the crowd and you know you can raise your hand you see other people raising your hand you're caught up in the moment maybe you have to do it maybe you don't then we would say okay everyone whose hands are raised stand up everybody stand up and so these people would stand up and then we would have everybody else everybody else applaud these people who are going to hold these events and they're standing up, they're being applauded by like you a know, hundred people. You're really on the spot at this time. <laughs> and then at that moment we'd say, okay, everybody that's standing out, go to that back corner of the room, march over to the back corner of the room. And literally we would have other volunteers that would basically force them, press them to put a date a time and a location on a sheet of paper. And then we'd march them up in the front of the room after they'd done that about 10 minutes later, and they would announce their event and they were on the hook and the beautiful thing was everyone in the crowd felt such empathy. They were so glad they hadn't raised their hand to hold the event. <laughs> but they felt such empathy for these people standing in front of this crowd who are now having an event that they went and signed up for those events because they wanted to help out the people that were on the hook. Wow. And once in, once in person, you know, you'd look someone in the eye and said, I'm coming to your event, even if they don't know you, or you've said you're going to hold an event and someone has looked you in the eye and said, I'm coming to your event. You know, they're, they're really, they really do have to follow through, but also, you know, they know it's going to be okay because they've already met at least one of the strangers that's going to be coming um, to do this, and they don't want to let each other down. So it was, a, it was a very effective tactic at moving people from wanting to do something, you know, which is a little bit scary with people they don't know, to actually doing something. And once you've done it once, you know what I mean? You know how wonderful it is, and you keep doing it.
3: Something I wanted to ask you about is it seems that increasingly election campaigns focus on micro-targeting. They're identifying sets and subsets of undecided voters and just going after them. Why do you advocate talking to all voters?
0: Well, first of all, because there's this huge capacity in the grassroots that's just waiting to be asked to do work, to help change things, we actually have the capacity to talk to everybody. And I think in the past, we haven't felt like we actually had the ability to talk to as many people as we as we might want. But I also think that, you know, in the United States, the political class and certainly the media class, they, they, they've taken so many voters and so many residents of our communities, they've taken them for granted assuming that they're with us because they have nowhere else to go, or, or, or they've just left them out because they don't really care what they have to say, or they don't really care about their experience. And so with all these voters in the United States who've been left out or taken for granted in our political campaigns, have haven't been been speaking to, to so many of our neighbors for so long. And it's by bringing those people into the process that we're going to change the outcome of elections. And finally, I think it's important to talk to everybody because You know, we have to be careful about winning with the thinnest of majorities made up of people in our major cities, because when we do win and go into government, we need to change policy and we need to build a countrywide mandate for the change And for that, we're going to need support from everywhere. And so even though we're not going to win majorities in some places in our countries ever, um, we will win the support of some people everywhere. And we're going to need people everywhere to help us transform our countries and advocate for change once in government and prove that the change that we want to win is for everybody, not just the majorities that tend to power left parties, you know, to to a majority that are in our major cities.
3: Well, I suppose uh, that, that kind of leads into what I was about to ask you next, which is what happens to these grassroots movements after an election is over?
0: Well, in, in my country, I think we've really failed, actually, when we've when we've gotten a lot of people excited and involved in a big national presidential campaigns where we're talking about the problems we face as a nation. And, and once we get that candidate into office or once that candidate fails to get into office, often these grassroots you know, movements because they were nurtured by paid staff on that campaign and that campaign staff has gone away, or because the lists of people and how they were connected together are tied up in a campaign infrastructure that's now locked away and, and put on mothballs um, for the next four years, that we've that we've that we've not done a good job of doing that. I think the most important thing to do is that we have to give people something to do the day after the election. even if people who work on campaigns are tired and want to go on vacation, the volunteers are ready for the next thing and they're they want to stay connected to each other and they want to stay connected to to their political leaders. But absolutely grassroots movements that spring up around electoral campaigns we've we've let them we've let them disappear into the ether every four years in our country. and if we're really going to change things, that's going to have to be something that's going to be different.
3: One last question. What would you say to someone who has never taken part in political activism but is considering getting involved in an election campaign, maybe the one we've got going on here at the moment? What's what's the thing you want to say to that person?
0: Well, first of all, I want to say that you are the one that's going to make the outcome be different than so many times before. In my country and in your country, people new to politics, they're the ones that are making the biggest difference. Without you, we will not get from the world we have to the world where we've won. So if you don't participate, uh, we're going to be having making the same mistakes and we're going to be um, achieving the same failures that we have in the past. So what I would say to people who are new to politics, not only do we want you to participate and get involved, but we need you to take on real responsibility, even if you've never done this before because you have the new energy, you have the new connections, you have the new ideas that we need to make the outcome of our campaigns be different. I can assure you, if you get involved and if you take a big role, you're going to be brilliant and you'll most likely do better than those of us who have been around for a while. So we're excited to see what you've done and what you will do and absolutely get involved. Becky, I'm sold. Thank you, and, and for those of us in the U.S., to those of you in the U.K., we're, we're watching your election very closely, and in, in the same way that you know the Brexit vote prefigured the election of Trump, you know we believe if you pull off a win, it's really going to put wind in our sails for making the change that we need to make in 2020. So, thanks for everything you're doing.
3: We're going to look now at the resurgence of canvassing in France and how that has transformed the last couple of presidential elections there. And to talk about that with us, we have Vincent Pons who is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School and co-founder of the campaign consultancy Explain. Uh, Vincent, hello. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, please can we start by you telling us the story of how this sort of Obama-style canvassing came to France? and what the strategy was around that that was used in Hollande's 2012 presidential campaign.
5: Yeah, hello, thanks uh, for having me. So it started with Obama, actually. Uh, It started because uh, I started my PhD in 2008 at MIT, and I was coming straight from France with uh, two of my friends, and and we were surprised to see so many activists knocking on doors on the field. Uh, because in France, this was not uh, a common picture uh, that we had from uh, electoral campaigns. And so we started investigating a bit, and um, you know, uh, we realized that indeed there was a, a very big difference between uh, US-style field campaigns and what existed in France. Um, and when we talked to politicians in France, many of them told us that door to door was not adapted to the French context. They said that it's a a uh, habit of um, uh, Protestants uh, knocking on doors to uh, try to persuade you <laughs> and, uh, and and that the french people would not be happy to talk about politics on their doorsteps
3: so how typically were french politicians engaging with voters directly during campaigns prior to that then
5: when they were using volunteers uh, which is not always uh, when they were using volunteers, they would ask these volunteers to go on markets and do what they called leafleting, so distributing leaflets, but without really having conversations uh, with voters. Or they were doing something which is even more impersonal, which was simply going from one building to the other and uh, putting leaflets in mailboxes uh, without any personal contact with voters.
3: And and what had you seen in, in America in the Obama campaign? What had you specifically seen that you thought this is a technique i'd like to take back to france
5: what has seen is a uh, technology and uh, logistics put at the service of um, having as many personal discussions as possible between members of the obama campaign you know field activists that had joined the campaign on one hand and voters on the other hand i could see uh, people from massachusetts that were taken by car and, and went to door knocking uh, in neighboring states that were swing states and that were uh, more important uh, for the campaign. So there was this massive organization that was put the service of a, ha- of a, a campaign technique, which in the end is ancestral because it relies on talking uh, to other voters.
3: And, and then when you go back to France and you say, I saw this work in Obama's campaign, this is what we should be doing for Francois Zaland, what, what do people say? What is the reaction like?
5: This, this is not going to work in France. It's too difficult. People will not open the buildings. They will not open the door of the apartment when you knock at, when, when you knock at it. And if they do, they will be pissed. Uh, and so what we responded is, why don't we try Uh, you know, if uh, people's opinions on this are split, we should run a scientific experiment and measure as rigorously as possible the effects of door-to-door canvassing. And so that's what we did. Um, In 2010, there was a regional election. And so in a couple of, uh, in in like about 10 municipalities in the region surrounding Paris, we recruited activists of the uh, Socialist Party. And with them, we trained them. And then with them, we went on the field. We knocked on doors. Uh, And we had a group that uh, was not uh, included in the canvassing so that we could compare in the end the participation of people that had been reached by canvassers and the participation of voters that had not been reached. And we noticed that door-to-canvassing had indeed increased participation.
3: So, so you'd amassed this evidence in those elections. So then you go on to Alan's presidential campaign. What did what you'd learned from canvassing in, in these elections teach you for that campaign?
5: Yeah. so one thing we learned in 2010 was that uh, door-to-door canvassing can be very intimidating if you've never done it before. And so we learned that it was very important to empower the activists using role plays, using trainings before sending them on the field to talk to actual voters.
3: And, and what works in terms of those conversations and what doesn't work?
5: So oftentimes, you know, people tell me, can you tell me uh, what's the best script, uh, what canvassers have to say uh, to get uh, a vote? And if you think about that, you think in the exact wrong way, because if you tell your canvassers to follow a precise script, you miss the entire point door to canvassing. In fact, the point is that door to canvassing allows you to have personal discussions. And that's the beauty of door to canvassing, that it, it allows you to do that. You cannot do that if you send uh, you know, a Facebook message to many people. You cannot do that if uh, you have uh, robocalls. You cannot do that if you have leaflets that you put on mailboxes. Uh, and so, what doesn't work is to tell your canvassers this is the like thirty seconds uh, spiel that you have to give to all voters. What works instead is if they actually engage with voters, they listen to them, and and they share uh, the propositions of the candidate.
3: And do you think these conversations work better uh, at, at persuading people to vote for a particular party or candidate, or are they better at getting existing supporters energized and out to vote?
5: I mean, your question points to the fact that there are essentially two ways to win votes. One is to mobilize non-voters that you know will vote for you if they vote. And the second is to persuade active voters to change their mind. Um, for a long time, the perception was that to canvassing was better at the first. But in fact, uh, this was the working hypothesis of the Holland campaign that we would mobilize non-voters. And for that reason, we targeted precincts in which participation was relatively lower than in other precincts of the same municipality. And instead, we were surprised uh, to see that uh, we did increase Hollande's vote share, but this was not by mobilizing non-voters. Instead, it was by uh, persuading active voters to vote for Hollande instead of voting for other candidates. Overall, uh, the campaign increased the vote share of Hollande by 0.4 percentage points, which is... Uh, about one-fourth of his victory margin in the second round of these elections.
3: Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about what you then went on to do. You went on to work on Macron's presidential campaign. Was, was that a different approach to the one you took with Hollande? Um, you tell me about that and also tell me about what this Grande Marche was and, and what the thinking behind that was.
5: In fact, we worked uh, with Macron in the summer of 2016, which was almost one year before the 2017 uh, election. And uh, we worked with him even before he was uh, a candidate uh, officially. And we worked with him to organize the Grand March. The idea of the Grand March was uh, uh, that instead of uh, just contacting voters in the few weeks before the election, we would contact them way before, not to persuade them to vote for, uh, for Macron, Again, he was not the candidate uh, yet, but to listen to what they wanted for the country. Macron was not a candidate yet. He didn't have a program yet. And so he wanted to understand what French voters really cared about.
3: And do you think that these two campaigns have changed the way that elections are done in France?
5: Yes, definitely. I mean, even as early as 2012, um, we could see that uh, right after the presidential election, there were the parliamentary elections. They took place uh, one or two months after the presidential elections. And, and right then, we could see right-wing candidates um, starting to adopt some of the methods that uh, Hollande uh, and the left-wing uh, had used during the presidential campaign. So I think there's, there was clearly a, deep, a very rapid diffusion of this uh, technique because people could see that it was a new thing, that it worked, and so they were eager uh, not to lose an edge in this uh, electoral competition and, and also adopt the latest tools
3: and and so finally, beyond the benefits to the individual parties, do you think the, that grassroots campaigning in this way is good for democracy in general?
5: Yes, and I think that's the beauty of it and the reason is that oftentimes we see a democracy as an effort to um, you know, count uh, the, the, to count the votes, to you know, count which share of the population is in favor of policy A or policy B, of candidate A or candidate B, party A or party B. But I think democracy is much more than that. There's an, another essential dimension to democracy, which is deliberation through discussions, actually reaching a consensus, talking with each other, sharing points of view, uh, and and perhaps being persuaded, changing our minds. Um, and so... You know, oftentimes we do have these discussions, but they take place with other people that look like us. Our friends, our family members oftentimes share our political views. And instead, with door-to-door canvassing, with these uh, personal contacts, these personal conversations, we have an opportunity to go and talk to voters who are very different from us. I really think that that's something that we miss in democracy today, the possibility to bridge the gap between different groups of the population, to listen to each other, and it's very difficult to do that if you don't actually go on the field and, uh, and talk to voters that uh, are different from, from you. Well, that
3: sounds like a cheerful place to, uh, to finish. Vincent Pons, thank you very much.
5: Thanks a lot for having me.
3: We're going to finish our whistle-stop tour of grassroots campaigning in Germany. Now, there are a few different factors that mean canvassing hasn't been that common, but that is changing. And to explain that to us, we have Simon Krasinski, who is a research associate at Mainz University in Germany. Simon, hello. Um, And can you tell us about what campaigning has traditionally looked like for uh, political parties in Germany?
6: Yeah, hello from my side. And of course, um, so... During the time with um, relatively stable electorate and strong party identification, canvassing was one of the main instruments they used. But um, we see this change that with, for example, print media, like partisan press, newspaper advertisements, or even radio broadcasts, that um, these communication tools kind of made those um, face-to-face tools diminish. And um, during that time, um, German parties started also to use like the um, classical mass media, like TV. Um, And um, this was done in the early 50s, for example, that parties started to shift their resources from the ground game to these mass market advertisings. And that canvassing was then seen as kind of a relics of the past. So we see a change there um, also in the German uh, campaigning landscape.
3: And there was also a change in how people were physically, geographically living. They were tending to live in apartments more than individual houses, which makes canvassing more difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. So what changes in 2017 then? You have this federal election and there's a big return to grassroots techniques. Why is that? And maybe tell us a little bit about what those techniques look like in 2017.
6: So what we can see um, during um, the um, 2017 campaign was that German political parties increasingly started to use digital technology data and also analytics um, to identify persuadable, persuadable voters. And um, target them um, with these tailor-made messages online, so via Facebook ads, for example, but also offline, so with door-to-door canvassing. One thing which is really relevant for um, German parties using um, canvassing as an instrument is um, the implementation of apps, for example, Also mobilizing platforms. So the two bigger parties, the Social Democrats and also the Christian Democrats, really invested um, a huge amount of money and also personal resources to drive their canvassing campaigns and um, try to experiment with that um, instrument.
3: And, and was that a success? What kind of difference did you see for the, those parties that used these techniques, this combination of sort of apps and digital technology and old fashioned canvassing and mobilization?
6: Mm-hmm. So, um, what we could see is that, for example, the Christian Democratic Party bought, for example, data, um, and used also, um, different kind of, um, uh, anonymized, um, data to, um, make geographical models um, to determine constituencies which correlated particularly strong with the Christian democratic vote intention, for example. And then they sent um, their um, volunteers in that areas to um, knock on the doors so that um, those people who um, the CDU thought that um, they would be uh, mobilizable can be contacted on their doorsteps and then they should be mobilised in the end.
3: One last thing. Uh, You've got federal elections coming up in 2021. Do you expect to see uh, strategies similar to the ones you've been describing being used? Have, Have we seen a shift in how German campaigns are run?
6: so absolutely i think that these data driven strategies will um used also in the 2021 federal election so first um, almost all german parties invested a lot of money and time and personal resources to develop these mobilization strategies and secondly um door-to-door campaigning was also used by nearly all the parties in the state elections for example in Bavaria and Hesse 2018 but also in the eastern uh, German elections um in 2019 so this shows us also that these kind of um mobilization strategies will heavily be lo- be used in the 2021 federal election
3: Simon thank you so much for talking to us
6: yeah, thanks for inviting me to your podcast.
3: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. How old
1: up?
3: And here to talk about how the election's been for her this week. I am delighted to say hello to my friend Rosie Jones. Hello. Hello.
4: Hello. Hello. How are you? I
3: am fine. I've just been boring you with um, the the fact that my three year old, when he wakes up in the morning, he comes into my bedroom and he he says, Daddy, my penis. He either says, Daddy, my penis is still tired, or Daddy, my penis isn't tired anymore. And you you were trying to figure out whether it's a metaphor or if he's been literal.
4: Yeah, it's a metaphor for toxic masculinity. It's him saying my penis is still tired he's trying to make a change he's a modern man
3: he's saying i reject that yeah yeah, yeah maybe, yeah, may, maybe yeah, so maybe yeah. so um
4: I'll he's let you know. very clever
3: Well, I think so, but all parents think their kids are clever and special, when in actual fact they're all just a bunch of idiots, really. (laughs) Uh, So how has the election been for you this week, Rosie?
4: Yeah, I mean, you got away through a lot of shit. Mm. Um, And really, I thought more would be happening by now.
3: But, more upheaval there'd yeah, be more stories coming yeah, out of it I mean it seems yeah. to a large extent that the Tories are just trying to do nothing because That's if they do it. that then nothing can go yeah. wrong for them yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: yeah. Um, but I found some lovely stories
3: so what, what have you enjoyed then what's your first thing
4: Trees,
3: trees.
4: Everybody's talking about trees now.
3: Broadly speaking, trees. Are you? Are you for or against?
4: Oh, uh, well, today I'm very, very much pro tree. Pro tree. Yeah. Is that controversial?
3: I don't know. I mean, we'll see if there's a no. Twitter storm after you say it.
4: <laughs> so the Labour Party apps suggested that part of their manifesto is they want to plant more trees which is incredible and Angel is so thankful that were not whining about Brexit. And finally, actually all the parties are going, Ooh. There's a thing about climate change. Well, this is
3: the thing we were talking about last week. If it wasn't for Brexit, this would be the climate election.
4: Yeah, Yeah. and it's so great that actually all the parties are sitting up and going, this is what we're going to do. And I think... That is amazing because we've been on the decline now for so long and I think every election the whole the world is gonna end soon hasn't been spoken about.
3: I, I mean, you would think of it as being a pressing issue, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, maybe. And what's good as well is like a lot of the time politics gets accused of being punch and Judy and partisan and they're all yeah. against each other. Yeah. And as far as I know, not even the Brexit Party have come out as anti-tree.
4: No, no one yet. Yeah. But... Uh, well, don't put it past it. I mean, you
3: look at the opinion polls, you think, well, there needs to be some movement somewhere. Maybe coming yeah. out as anti-tree yeah. could be the thing that... <laughs>
4: yeah, had- the leaves get everywhere. <laughs> now, my secret idea mm. is that whoever wins, we're going to get more trees. Which is amazing, because I got a dream that by 2014, we will all live in trees. Like
3: How, Ewoks?
4: Yeah. How um, amazing will that be? Yeah,
3: I, I, you know, as a kid, I always was jealous of middle yeah. class kids with tree houses.
4: Yeah, me too! Yeah. So, My plan is that we all have our own trees but we got secret tunnels between each of our houses.
3: Well, I have just the song, which I'll play for you once we've done. I can't play it yes. now because of uh, uh, copyright reasons. It's, but there's a great song called uh, Treehouse by a band called I'm From Barcelona. Oh,
4: and my I think God. That, that
3: could be the, you know, like the uh, Blair New Labour with Things Can Only Get yeah. Better. That that yeah. could be the, the, uh, the anthem for your yeah. tree yeah. party.
4: So I feel like that's such a good thing to come out of the election because... People will start sitting up and doing something about climate change, and hopefully, we won't all die.
3: That would be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm definitely pro yeah. continued existence. Yeah. All yeah. right. What's your second thing, Rosie?
4: It's a bad thing, but I'm using it to get something good out okay. of it. So there's Stormsea Gove Twitter.
3: Oh, yes.
4: Yeah. So, um, Gov basically said that Stormsea should shut up (laughs) because they doesn't know anything about politics and then they followed it up by doing mm, quite an insensitive tweet where he tried to be down with the kids which Made my whole insides cringe.
3: Yeah, yeah, you shriveled on the yeah, inside, yeah. Yeah,
4: not good. But the good thing I get out of this is stomachy, like, in my head, he is amazing and I just think it's so great that, yeah, he's a rapper but he's so passionate about politics and actually when he tweeted about registering 350 1,000 young people registered, and that is incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yet no matter who they choose to vote for, just the fact that they're going out and voting is incredible. And actually go for talking bullshit because Stormzy knows what he's talking about and I think it's so backward that just because he's a rapper it doesn't mean he- hasn't got a keen interest in politics and he's just amazing that he's using that platform for good storm. say if you're listening, I bloody love you and can we be friends.
3: Well, if he is politically engaged, you never know. He might be listening. Yeah, he might have sort of downloaded it, thinking, "I wonder what Ed's got to say." Then, like everyone else, been disappointed that Ed's campaigning, and it's just me and Rosie. But you never know. This could get through to him. Hope fingers crossed. Um, The the thing on young people and registrations that I'm constantly amazed by uh, the fact that there are so many unregistered voters. Mm. Because when I was so you know mid dad mm-hmm. was a big trade unionist and yeah. quite political but just getting to do something felt exciting so oh, turning 18 yeah. and oh I'm allowed to vote yeah. i wanted to vote straight away just because i could yeah. and, and that's not necessarily that i had very sort of informed opinions mm. or was that engaged mm. it's just because being young can be quite boring sometimes yeah. Yeah. and it's just like another thing you can do and that feels yeah. exciting
4: yeah. i remember that what year was it? I think it was 2009. Was that an election? There was an election year? in
3: 2010, wasn't there?
4: 2010. So that was the first general election I could vote. In. Oh, and
3: that was the Clegmania election? Yeah. Did you, did you get Clegmania? Yeah.
4: yeah. A, lot, a lot of people so, your age did, yeah, Rosie. Yeah. yeah. So, um,. I remember, yeah, I was nineteen, and I was at uni, and uh, no one in my flat voted, and I got so angry, um. But I'm part of the reason why I didn't vote was the polling station was. miles away and it's like come on yeah and I got cerebral palsy and I remember it took me about two hours to walk to the station
3: seriously
4: yeah yeah and I love that two hours right because him am married, I was walking to make a change. Obviously, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, but, you did, uh, just not, not, not a great one. Yeah. Actually, I'm not sure yeah, that made that much of a difference anyway, um, but. But uh, for me, I was the same, like, the first opportunity I confronted I did it, and, uh, unfortunately, not a lot of the young people felt the same way, but I do think with Brexit and also, like, people like Storms, it's breaking out. It's got young people riled up, and I think for the first time, hopefully, this year we'll see what young people can do.
3: Youthquake, the yeah.
4: youthquake. They oh, oh yeah. that's Let's incredible. See if it comes.
3: Yeah. And what's uh, what's your third and final thing, Rosie?
4: Oh, my paper. Which I don't think people are taking advantage of. It's the first general election in December since 1923. We're having a too much election.
3: So you're proposing we turn it into some kind of festive spectacular then?
4: Yes. <laughs> so everyone really who go to the polling station they shall wear their crimbo jumpers. Yes. There shall be one playing. in. Yep. When you come out of voting, you get a cracker. Yes. You tell each other jokes. Use a polling station to give your neighbors mince pies. Really, Christmas and voting should be a time when we all come together.
3: Rosie, I love this because so yeah. many people have been complaining about it, no. like taking the sort of ten minutes or two hours in your case out of the Christmas yeah. shopping is going to ruin Christmas. No. But you're 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 putting it in a completely yeah. different light. Yeah.
4: We're going to do it to share the joy. So when I go and vote, I'm going to take a tin of roses and just spread the Christmas love. Love it, Christmas jumper election. Yeah. We should
3: start a hashtag. Yeah, this could be yeah. a thing. Don't
4: right, don't.
3: Rosie. You've left me feeling cheerful. Oh, it's not necessarily good. the most cheerful of weeks, but you've left good. me feeling cheer cheerful. Rosie, you got anything you need to tell people to go to, watch, listen to?
4: Oh, I'm on at the Showhouse Theatre at the. And of January Do you know what?
3: That would would tell you what would be great, if people bought tickets to your show as a Christmas present for their friend or family or partner Yes,
4: and you can give them a present Mm. at the polling station
3: It's brilliant, it's brilliant brilliant. (laughs) Rosie Jones, thank you so much
4: Thank you so much Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast
1: about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh